Kevin Lyman revolutionized music festivals and touring as we know it. He entered the scene in the 90s working in the clubs of LA, played an early role of developing Lollapalooza, and went on to create the Vans Warped Tour, which ran for 20 years and became a huge cultural phenomenon and a logistical titan to manage. Kevin recently hung up the shoes to the Vans Warped Tour as we know it and has been playing an active role in the industry in other ways, including a professorship at the music business program at USC. With our very own music festival around the corner, it's so fitting that we were able to have Kevin on this episode of the Hull House Podcast, and we appreciate him greatly. Let's get into it. That's genius. That's one I have not thought of at all. <laughs> very cool. But um, yeah, podcasting, um, you know, definitely something that you got into as well. Um, I assume this is, this is the first podcast that you've done and like hosted and things of the nature. How did it feel for you kind of jumping in? Do you, do you feel like, you know, at first it was a lot more than you, you know, you bit off more than you could chew? I mean, I, I mean, I could always chew, but then it gets expensive because I tried to hire you know, some of my students are helping me uh, with some of the stuff and you know, doing the, some of the helping with some of the editing. But it's it's fine. I, I mean, I'm learning a lot. You know, to be honest, I, I finally got to learn how to, uh, to set it up and the equipment and, you know, master garage band, which everyone laughs at because, you know, I've never really used it. But now I can go in there and record files and garage band and pull everything off of Zoom that's needed and then it gives me a chance to hang out with one of my, my friends who I realized that's one thing I did was make a lot of friends I, within 12 blocks of where I lived. Cause that's kind of the circle you would walk at night. You know, everyone was out walking, everyone was outside. I'm working on my you know, garden. Everyone stops by and wants to talk. And um, during the pandemic, you know, you really realize that how many people and creatives lived within 12 square blocks of me, you really. And you know, we had our first gathering at the house here on Memorial Day and everyone, you know, people know me. I have a lot of people over usually and every, and everyone was here from about 12 square blocks that, and they're all vaccinated. Everyone felt comfortable together. And I've realized how many amazingly talented people live around it. That is really cool. Yeah, I know. Uh, similar, similar experiences that, you know, as soon as you say that, I feel like we're relating on a lot of different levels. First of all, with the podcast, yeah, it was for us culture shock too, you know, learning how to pull audio and all these different things that I had never done before. Uh, it's really cool to do that. And, and yeah, like you mentioned, you know, with the pandemic, you know, we're all, you know, socializing in such different ways. Everything's digital. You really get to know the people around you. And for us, like we had, uh, we live right on the, on a pond here and there was a pond cleanup day a few weeks ago. And that was like one of the first times I got to see a lot of people out and about together, the whole neighborhood. You know, I saw a crowd of like 40 people and I was like, wow, this is very interesting. And, you know, everybody was vaxxed up and everybody felt safe and comfortable. There were no masks at the time. And it, it was really cool to see that, that bit of community, even if it's right in your backyard. You have that little awkward moment because like, you know, people want to give you a hug and you're like, I'm not ready for the hug, but <laughs> a little oh, fist bump still, or, you know, the elbow. <laughs> yeah, the elbow, you know, I think I got used to it a lot. I was out, I got to play a lot of golf during the uh, pandemic you know, because that was one great, you know, safe place to be. And I'd go with the same people or go by myself. And, you know, it was, uh, but we're, we're coming back. I think for music, people are going to be really excited. You know, I'm, I, you know, there's some really cool new music out there. You know, I know you guys are looking at different things, but, you know, everyone's super excited about this band, the Linda Lindas in L.A. And, you know, I was just driving around listening to some music. And, you know, I think those late nights of um, going through Spotify and just trying to play all music that you've never heard of. And uh, it was pretty, you know, kind of was soothing in some ways. And I think maybe as just like younger guys, I was just listening to music and it was just an anticipation feeling of 
that what that first night out that I'm out at the bar, I'm out at a dance club, and I all the songs that I was listening to on Spotify, I was feeling that, or because for the first probably two months of the quarantine, I was listening to you know like acoustic ballads and like slower music or a lot of jazz and just kind of relaxing and turning my brain off because there was no stimulation of culture or people around you know you're zooming and talking to people but it felt different and then in the last like three or four months i've just been listening to so much house music and so much like reggae just excited for the summer and just ready to get out there and be more like a social creature i wants to send you a Pro, your profile, you know, and what who you're supposed to be and everything. They're really confused this year. You know, they don't know. Yeah, that. right. <laughs> the Spotify rap this year is going to be <laughs> needing recalculations. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The algorithm, we're going to give the algorithm a challenge. Yeah. What have you been listening to lately? Oh, my God. I, you know, I, I, some of it's been old. Some of it's been new. But, you know, really, like, for me, this period of time, there was artists like Duffy, Rex Orange out County that I really just was kind of chilling to. Um, you know, I'd sit up late at night and like kind of make, you know, make, I would just make playlists because we were also, you know, the one way we could get away is in our van. So we would drive out and just play some music, you know, and, you know, I'd start, Oh, I'll make this playlist, you know, I, you know, and everyone's could be a little bit different. I'm, you know, I'm looking at, you know, one might be mod sons having a great comeback, had some good music come out the, over this time, the knock knocks, milky chance, old Goldfinger stuff might could be on one playlist and then, you know, go back and grab a Juliet Sims songs or, you know, Bishop Briggs, Molly Tuttle, things like that, you know, kind of all over the place. And the, the Linda Lindas too are awesome. I, I love the Linda. Yeah, they're going to, you know, they're going to be exciting. I'm, you know, it's exciting. You know, Epitaph's going to sign them and we'll see. I hopefully uh, they'll, they'll be, you know, a band that'll be around. There's a lot of cool bands out there right now. What's your process look like when you're looking for new artists and trying to find new people and new sounds that you want to put on playlists or show to people? I mean, obviously, that's kind of a game that you've been in for a while with Warp Tour and things like that, kind of keeping your ear to the streets and looking for the next big thing and trying to put them on. Like, what, what, what do you look for? And like, how do you how do you find different bands and artists that you want to put on? When I book like festivals, Warp, Mayhem, too, that was kind of a process that you were trying to, to structure a package, one that can sell to help you sell tickets Two that had some support, like a team around them that can actually help what you could get, what we could give them at that point was an audience to play before to follow up with, you know, uh, you know, that, that they would maybe be able to, you know, have an agent or someone that can book a tour behind it so they could come back through town uh, to, you know, a label, if they had a label, some, even though I took some bands without labels, just because I like the sound of them, usually they ended up with a label afterwards, but it was just kind of, then, you know, Hey, just back, you know, then I'd try to make, if I could, a playlist, uh, old days, it used to be an iPod on shuffle, just kind of like see how the music would sound walking around a festival. Now it's just sheerly been fun because I'm not listening to book. I'm listening to enjoy again. And I think that's what happens in music sometimes in our industry. We get so we're, 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 not, we're, we're not listening to music for enjoyment. We're listening to it to put packages together, especially as a festival producer. Um, right now, it's just sheer enjoyment. Just like, oh, this. Oh, wait, I want to hear this. Put it on playlist. 
Right. I definitely ima- imagine that when you first started Warp Tour, obviously, for a plethora of reasons, I'm sure, you know, there was so much excitement around what you were doing. It was a lot smaller, a lot more touch and go. And, you know, I know you're, you know, personally very close with a lot of the bands like Sublime and, and No Effects and Pennywise and stuff. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, if we want to rewind a little bit, I'm very curious to know what the early days of Warp Tour were like when you were starting it. Because, like we've said, the, you know, the whole world is changing. COVID aside, you know, music and streaming and even festivals and stuff. And, you know, I imagine that the early days were kind of wild. And, you know, today, you know, we could transition into, you know, what it would look like to start a music festival today. You know, hypothetically, had you not started Warp Tour at all, and then in, you know, the mid-2000s, you had the idea, I'm sure the process of even being able to do it would have been different. It may not have even been viable to start it today. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, when I started it, I knew all the bands. I was working 320 days a year in clubs and, and I knew the bands. I saw how crowds reacted. I, you know, I saw how to mix a crowd with people and bring like bands that maybe not from the same scene, but kind of could complement each other just because I was always watching the audiences. When, when we didn't have barricades, I was the human barricade. So you're watching the crowd all night. You kind of starting to see who's reacting to what. And, you know, you knew when you were working five to seven nights a week seeing you know three to four bands in a club you would definitely see, start to see really quick the cream rising to the top you know uh there's a lot of people that could play a show but there was a group that could actually in, in incite a show and almost incite a crowd into a certain way so when i could start putting those together then um you know it, then there was a process for many years where it was like okay who has an album coming out Who's going to be this push? Like the label's going to actually get behind it. I can get behind it. And we'd get Fuse TV behind it. So it was a great synchronicity to get that together. You know, so you were maximizing every artist out on the road or they were maximizing wherever they were at, hopefully taking them to the next level. And a few of those bands would come back for two or three years, like a Paramore, a Day to Remember, some of those bands or some of the work with My Chemical Romance early on. They did Taste of Chaos. They did, because I had multiple tours. And then it gets a lot harder, you know, and I, and I don't know if you could do it now because it's all based on streaming a lot for a band and touring. They're two separate things. Sometimes streaming doesn't drive touring as much as you think. And touring doesn't drive streaming. Like we used to touring would drive record sales. And if you got it going, there was revenue streams coming in from all sides for the artists, from the record label, from touring, from merchandising. Now, I don't know if I could book it. I don't know if you could do something like this because especially, and and no disrespect, but what I'm reading today, I can't remember her name, but she was signed to a record deal because she was good at lip syncing TikToks. Yeah. I think, I think it's many girls. Yeah. I think they probably (laughs) signed like five of them. Yeah. (laughs) You know, might be very, very cool, but think about it, how big someone, like this was a plan. We would book them in September and October, and then we would have nine months to kind of work this whole thing together. Now it could be a TikTok person on, I don't know, what is it? June 1st. And they could be huge in two weeks, but are they ready to tour? I think we all will be around in nine months. Right. Right. Yeah. I think we all kind of learned the dangers of that early on, too, with just how involved the three of us are with going to shows and things like you see these artists who blow up on, you know, back in the 2010s, it was YouTube. Now it might be Spotify in between then and now it might have been SoundCloud. And you're like, wow, this guy's got, you know, fucking this million, many million plays. He's awesome. I love him. You go to watch him live and you're like, 
why did I spend my money on that? That was terrible. And yeah, it doesn't always maybe, translate between those artists will be, you know, you know, do you, do you pay money for those people or do you just watch them online? Yeah. Yeah. You know, do they do shows online? I, I, I don't know. You know, so, you know, and it's not to judge. We're just in a phase in time where this is very, very popular, but I don't know if that would be conducive. Like, I don't know if I gamble trying to put together a tour of TikTokers <laughs> and then go, it's, it's like the YouTubers did for a while. And some of those social media kids that they would go on tour, but by the time they went out on tour, because it takes a little while to put these things together, they weren't quite as, there was someone younger and cooler or someone cooler than them. So um, I understand why maybe the labels are signing it because they're looking for chunks of cat- pieces of catalog that they throw under. It's all a mutual fund now. You're basically just putting catalog into your thing that'll stream. And if you title on it, every other artist you have and they stream. So, so grinding it out and working a nine months, booking a tour nine months early of a band, a bunch of bands you would like to break c- could be really challenging, I think. I think too, um, an aspect of starting something today compared to, I mean, just, I, I remember being in 2008, 2009, 2010 is the, the crowd and the fans of artists are just different than they were back in 2008 and 2009. You'd be obsessed with a band and you'd have their physical CDs and you'd buy five t-shirts and maybe you'd travel to another city to see him. And I just think that kids these days, they don't really feel that same connection because it also felt like you had to kind of work to find the band. Absolutely. It, you know, I remember fi- like watching MTV all day or watching VH1 in the mornings or on Sunday mornings and watch seeing Paramore for the first time and being like, this band is awesome and telling all my friends at school and you got to go on. And this is even later than you got, you got to go on iTunes and download this band's song and listen to it. And it's incredible. And maybe you'll hear it on the radio a couple times, but you really have to dig and work to find things. And now kids just get it put right in their face through an algorithm or something like that. And they don't feel like they've actually worked for it. And they don't feel the connection to the band. And I feel like the music definitely spoke for itself in a lot of ways. Like you said, if you were to, you know, turn on VH1 and you see Paramore for the first time, it's other than the fact that they're on TV. It's kind of up to you to be like, oh, do I like this or keep not? Keep looking. Yeah, there's no social media page. Yeah. There wasn't. You know, you could go to their Spotify and listen to every single song. I had to go to iTunes and use my parents' money to buy three songs and then listen to them like 150 times over the next three days and just become obsessed with the band. Exactly. I get used to get the little charges for my daughters. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dollar spent on the one dollar charge on this, you know, and but then you know, it's weird because there's so much music, and they're you know they're saying sixty thousand songs a day get loaded up to Spotify. Wow! That if you don't grab that song, sometimes how are you going to find it again? Unless like you almost have to, I add them to playlists really quickly sometimes just because I want to go back and listen or make sure. But if I go into something else, I may never find that artist again because if you can't completely remember the name, you know. Getting older, five minutes later, I can't remember the name of the band. I heard some band today. On, I was listening to um, new music on uh, Sirius Alt Radio. They do some show. And by the time I got home, I went, who was that guy? Well, that was pretty cool. Oh, wait, the lyrics to the song. Pretty good. What was that line? Oh, wait, I'm on to my next thing already. So, you know, <laughs> got to sit there and write it down or, or save it really quick. Was it easier when you had physical demo tapes that you could go, all right, flip through these and then play it again? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because you would, you know, have your, I had my computer had a CD player. My car had a CD player. I had an eight, eight 
rack carousel or, and then a 30 rack carousel in the house, you know, um, that was, you know, it was easier to be honest. Um, it was if for, to, to be able, you know, now, then it was everyone would send MP3s, but if, in an email and then you want to switch emails and there goes that MP3, I can't, where did it stops the song in the middle? So, you know, it's just all adapting. It's, it, it really is, you know, and, and, you know, my family's, you know, they're obsessed with TikTok right now. So. Are you on TikTok yourself? Um, we did a TikTok for the podcast. We're supposed to do, I don't know. I, you know, I have it on my hair now because I like when my daughter sends something for me to watch. Definitely. <laughs> Man, there's a lot of creativity out there. It's yeah. one thing when you coop people up, they get very creative. That's true. Definitely. You bring up a cool point about demo tapes. I'm curious. Um, this is just a fun question, I guess. Is there a specific demo tape that you have that would kind of like shock us or one that like you really remember, you know, just a super memorable one? I had the, I had the cassette demos of Sublime like you brought up earlier. Oh, that's crazy. That Yeah, that's <laughs> insane. All time low demos. I had a lot. I used to have a lot of a lot of stuff like that. And to be honest, through the years, you know, I've never been a huge collector. You know, you have some things, you know, that you have, but a lot of stuff has kind of either I've given it away or pass it on or when the rock hall open, they, they have a lot of it in their vaults now that they can use again, you know, for different things. But yeah, that, that cassette demo tape from Subline floated around in the back floor of my car forever. I, I hope you still have it though. <laughs> yeah. How much would you charge for it? Yeah, if you had to auction it off. <laughs> oh yeah, you look back, and I've never, you know, I'm never patient enough to sell anything. I just tend to give it away or pass it on to people. Oh, that's cool. Another interesting thing now is like people making music at home, especially like you said, cooped up the past year and things like that. Everyone has like such great access to high quality engineering and mixing. They could do it themselves on their own laptop. So it must be interesting now hearing like demos, which sounds like it was recorded in a professional studio versus back then you have to actually really give it a good listen to a demo to be like, all right, I can see some potential in this because they didn't have that kind of access. No, no band or artist or anyone should ever give anyone anything and not say it's my best piece of work. You know, it's funny because I'd always get demos and I go, this isn't really great, but we'd love for you to hear it. That's like kind of not taking my time into account or other people's time. So as an art, as for bands out there, make sure that whatever you distribute for someone to listen, that you're looking to hope to do is your best possible thing at, at, at that moment, mm. you know? Um, and you're right. You can record, you know, studio stuff now in your, your home sounds so good. So there's no excuse to, to have a bad, bad sounding demo. It's like going to a restaurant and the server being like, well, the food's not going to be great tonight, but you're still going to eat it. Yeah. We got Larry in, you know, normally yeah. here's our menu, but you know, 90% of things aren't that good tonight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend going up the street. Yeah. But that's so cool. I mean, you know, I, I, for years, you know, just going to Warped Tour and stuff, the origins of it beyond my lifespan, but I can only imagine, you know, what that all must have felt like. And for you to be doing the podcast now, I mean, obviously you live with the memories, but I'm sure now, especially, you're kind of really getting nostalgic about a lot of the early stuff that had happened. Yeah, I just did a bunch of interviews of uh, parents who brought their kids to Warped Tour, like families that went to Warped Tour for a couple of upcoming episodes. And and you never realized because you were moving so fast. We were working so hard. And we would see these people and they, you'd get to know them through the years because they tend to come every year. And some of them would bring down, you know, and, and how that important that was maybe for their bonding with their children. 
You know, um, I was lucky enough to have my children out on the road with me. They worked out on tour. They worked very hard on tour with me. But for people that went and, you know, you hear a story and you're going, oh, man, that'd be great, man. I wish I could. Yeah, maybe not. And then you're like, oh, wow. Wait, wait. There was, you know, the physical side of Warp Tour was getting harder and harder to go out and do. Were there any parents that were absolutely like mortified with what they saw when they went there? Oh, that's where you find them on TikTok. <laughs> that's what inspired these episodes, you know, and the podcast is called My Warped Life. So everyone is, it's you who have a warped life. So I've crossed paths with you. And, you know, we have an episode coming out with Bob Hurley from Hurley, who well, inspired me in many ways. But I think it was inspired, this episode, by some TikToks that my daughters sent me that the people were, this woman just bagging on having her daughter for making her take to the warp tour. <laughs> like how it was hot and some guy touched her shoulder and it was great. So, you know, this episode episode should be a lot of fun, but I think, you know, it'll, you know, there are, I'm sure there's parents and, and on TikTok, there were some that just, it became a little thing for a moment where people were like, I can't believe I brought you to that thing. And some band called, pierce the falling or falling the pierce the whatever they all sounded like crap you know <laughs> so um it, it 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 was kind of fun talking to people and it's been good because i've actually during this time had the time to take an hour and now we're you know we've got all you know i probably interviewed about 100 people so far that we're going to splice in and it's just getting their stories documented so we got one of the, some super hard drive. Don't ask me how many, but people look at it and goes, you know, what are you running a, a Bitcoin mine or something in your house? <laughs> uh, so we could save all this on a hard drive. And credit, I'm sure you've seen some parents at Warp Tour, like my dad, who was the guy who was looking at the schedule. And when I was like 11, finally convinced my mom to say, all right, I'm starting to take him to shows. And then I was the kid who was standing in the crowd. I saw all time low at the Avalon in Boston, the old house of blues. I've seen, I've seen some wild shows, cheap trick at the same place, the Avalon that my dad just dragged me to. So shout out to those parents who kind of probably had to fight with their spouse to convince the, them to let them take their kids. But I'm sure you saw that. I saw that when we went to like, uh, you know, parents get in free when I was doing that program. And there's dad with the every time I die shirt, you know, know, violent gentleman hat like and the kid that's like in his, you know, I don't know, Barney sweatshirt. And they're going to the warp like he dragged him to the warp tour because like he's like getting it for free. And the kid's like, I just want to play Nintendo. Like, you know, but my dad used to use me to get guitar picks. He would, he would have me be around yeah, yeah. your father who was, was, was into the music and, and brought you along. And obviously it was a good time for both of you because he actually turned you onto that music. Yeah, absolutely. It rubbed off of me. And, and like at the time I was like, Oh, okay. And I'd be dragged to shows on like a Tuesday night into Boston. And I'd be like, all right, sure. Whatever. And then I got to like 14 where I'm like, Oh, I'm still, going to shows with my dad like there's you know these cool like emo girls who are at the show that I want to talk to and it smells like weed and I'm here with my dad and now I know like as a 25 year old guy I'm going to be the dad who's like well I don't care I'm going with you to the show and we're going to hang out in the back and we're going to talk about music and listen to it on the way there so Uh, secrets for you okay I went to school and I should have been the cool dad right but I only had to walk 10 feet behind my daughter's the lawyer yes. and doctors had to go 25 feet behind. So you know, I'm still not going to be that cool. All right. So, 
It's all about the music. That's what my dad would say. He would say to my mom, my mom would go, can you let him go with his friends? He's like, I want to hear the music too. <laughs> That's better than him saying, I want to be there for all the emo girls. Yeah. Oh, yes, totally. That would be more problematic. Totally. totally, totally. Yeah. probably wouldn't have gone over too well. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, transition from that to like, I'm sure there's so many cool stuff. Obviously, like, you know, I've been listening to the podcast and so many fascinating stories I would have never known about from all the aspects, which I really appreciate. You really touch on all these little things that maybe people don't think about initially or might not even know about, like the barbecues and then some of the crazy band stories. I know you've talked about in your podcast. I think our viewers would get a kick out of it. Um, I know one of the topics you talked about is is some of the craziest stories of getting bands from one tour date to another. Is there a story specifically that you could think of that you'd want to talk about as far as like a disaster of a band that you had to get from one place to another and things were just not working out? Oh, like like a place on tour, like driving? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, you know, we had, I, I think it was a year two. Um, there was a band from Sweden called Melancholy, which was kind of a very cool punk band and very cool, very melodic, very early, like very good band. But their bus caught on fire out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And they and we came rolling up on them and there was all that was left. They were in their tidy whitey standing by the side of the road and their bus was a burning heap. And and we're like, you gotta get to the show, you gotta get to the show, we'll figure this out. We'll leave we'll leave the bus drivers here, jump in, and all they had was were in their they were sleeping in their underwear and we had to figure out how to get them clothed, dressed, and find band gear by the next day so they could play. Was that a mechanical thing or was that someone sparking up a doobie in the back of the bus? People was just the, the transportation, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. You're out there touring across the country and you're moving and and we have to keep moving. People didn't realize that if someone broke down, we try to figure out how to get them there, but everyone had to keep moving. And if you didn't keep up with the, with the, with the caravan, you could be down. There was just some young band and they broke down and I think they only made about half the shows all summer. They were always like two cities behind us. See, I hear, you hear stories like that and you feel bad for, for some of these bands where these things happen. I know there's one story you mentioned on the podcast for a band that we probably wouldn't feel as bad of. I think that you guys were at like a beach bar on like a day off and then, or you guys were in like a beach strip. I don't know if you can correct me on it. Then something happened. There was like fights breaking out. <laughs> well, that was hate breed. Yeah, hey, Breed, that's the one. Yeah, do you want, can you tell us a little bit about what happened with them? It's funny because Jamie Jossie, he's a, such a nice guy now. He's grown up and everything. But when I, they were out on warp, they were just turds, like total, like hard, <laughs> young. I can't get, it's not being mad at them, but they were just young. And they were, you know, $5 all you could drink in Wrightsville Beach. You know, what are you going to do? And I just said, whoa, I'm this is going to end up bad. And I'm just going to go. So they were riding on our tour buses and I just went and sat on my bus and waited for the cops to show up and which they eventually did and had everyone lined up against the wall. And then they decided they were going to go break their friend out of jail. And (laughs) guys that were involved and we had a throat. It it was, you know, you you look back and then all of a sudden I'm go fishing with Jamie 10 years later. (laughs) <laughs> you know, me and him went fishing down in Florida together and, and you sit back and laugh and, and yeah, I always say, you know, it's, it's one of those things that was, you know, 99% of the things were just youthful energy. And I think you know, a lot of times youthful energy, you know, it's hard, the road, man, you, you have no rules sometimes and you're trying to figure it out. And sometimes reality jumps up and gets you, you know, and, and that first year, you seems like, yeah, are fans of sublime. I mean, um, Brad um, got thrown in jail two days in a row on 
on Warped Tour down in Florida, you know? So he made the shows, though. He got out, bailed out, and he showed up in time to play a That's show. That's all that matters. That's what it's all about. So, what was the biggest... What was the biggest logistical nightmare on the set? I know I read a, a story about um, D12 getting into some beef while they were there. What what was what was like the, the like the one day, the one show where you were like, "How am I going to figure this out? What is going on?" Well, you know, you said D12. You know, Eminem, you know, had his launch on Warp Tour. Pretty much, it was his big launch, and he he asked to have D12 come out the next year. And I had heard they had a beef with a guy named Esham, and I just said, "Look, you can't bring it to this parking lot." It can't come into this parking lot. You know, this parking lot, it's no place for, for some sort of hip hop beef. And they brought it and I kicked them off, you know, and it was a night before a big show uh, in New We were on our way from, we were going from Philly to New York city and Eminem was flying in to do some songs with them, which would have been pretty epic, you know? Uh, but I had a call and say, he, they're off the tour. They're not, they're off this tour. Um, you know, people will yell and, and there was a lot of phone calls. And I said, look, you're not standing in this parking lot with me. That's why I was at every show. I was there because you know what? It's hard for a manager or an agent to argue with someone that's actually on the ground making those decisions. And most people said, you know, they, they understood that I, I didn't take these decisions lightly, but all I would have needed was Esham to find someone who maybe had a weapon to bring it down to the New York show. You know, we weren't that tight security backstage and he took revenge and his revenge could have included a, a weapon and shoot some poor kid that was trying to get an autograph from, you know, good Charlotte or someone, you know, or whatever year that was, that would have killed what I did. And I had to make those decisions right or wrong. Um, I had to make them and live with them. It's crazy to see how involved your role really is. In a lot of ways, you're playing the dad, you're playing the mediator, you're playing a lot of things at once. And and you bring up an interesting point, especially early on, right? You know, security and all these different concerns. Um, I just have so many questions. I know I could pick your brain all night about everything from start to end of Warp Tour. And I just even just, you know, for us, you know, we're kind of in the early phases of trying to plan a small scale festival here in Massachusetts. Um, later this year. And so even for me, like logistically, everything that we're kind of like think, like looking at now is just like, oh my gosh, right. One thing after another, I can only imagine, or, you know, early, for you to start something early on, you know, did it feel like there just weren't as many obstacles and things to worry about, whether it be like insurance and liabilities and things like that? I mean, there, look, they, they, it was a dip, it was at certain levels, but you know, what allowed me to put on and understand festivals was I, I worked for 12 years before I put on work and I was, I worked on Lollapalooza. I was stage manager on Lollapalooza and worked in production on that tour. So I knew about touring festivals. I ran venues in town. I, I worked every night of the week. Um, but you learned, you know, hey, insurance, okay, that starts to become more and more of a component. Security becomes more and more of a component. Oh, wow. You know, just, just all HR, things that when we were working in the clubs, yeah, weren't that big, you know, wasn't that big a deal. And then, you know, we didn't really worry and it, and it starts to grow now. I mean, the amount of paperwork you will be doing for one festival will be more than we used to do for a whole tour. Right. Uh, you know, the amount of permits that are needing, and I don't know if you're going to do it, you know, in Lowell over at the Palladium with in Worcester, I mean, in Worcester, you know, with John Peters, He's got a good place to do festivals over there. 
But, you know, make sure that if you get do this, make some friends with the city first. Uh, do that hard part first. Um, and then you have a chance for success because um, festivals are not cheap to put on. Definitely. Uh, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the guy at the Palladium, which, yeah, definitely now they have the outdoor part, too. Definitely a cool place to, to put something on. It's cool. Uh, and this is something that, you know, I noticed when I was with you at Warp Tour is how many people you know and not just know but i remember us sitting backstage and people just kept walking by and you were like oh how's your arm feeling and oh how's this going on and even even just that all the groundwork you have with all these people at different venues i know you know you would interest introduce me to uh tim mckenna at the uh, xfinity center and i remember then i was like wow th- you know kevin must really know like every you know stage manager and production manager at like every venue you know, is it, obviously that's something that, you know, develops and, and expands and grows the more you do it. But did it ever feel overwhelming? I mean, I feel like just in general with everything that you were doing, like you're moving a million miles an hour. There's so much going on logistically. And then with people on top of it, were there certain days where you were like, this is just not going to work out today? Like something's going to fall apart. That, to be honest, and I, and I would never want to. And it's not being cocky, but it's once what I did well, you know, um, I put on festivals. Well, I haven't done some other things as well. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, if I get involved in projects, I bring in people that are really good at what they do and I can support them in different ways, but I love the energy of it. And I, and I honestly believe in, and if you talk to the venues and you talk to those people like Tim McKenna, Warp Tour was a show they looked forward to. Um, I, my staff, and you know that, were always nice. They were respectful. And as, as crazy as many people that were there, we were very respectful. And I think that was earned. You know, at the beginning, it was tough because I was touring with my peers who sometimes would chat, well, it'd be like pushing me and challenging me, you know. And then all of a sudden, I needed to kind of show that I was in charge and I could make those decisions. And but the venues really looked forward to Warped coming. They really did. And I know they did. That people who didn't come to the venues or didn't work every day made sure that they were working the Warped Tour. They wanted to work the Warped Tour. Warped Tour wasn't for everyone. wasn't for every fan out there. wasn't for every person. But once you embraced it and were part of it, I know that people that work in the venues miss it now. You know, they're, you know, normal tours roll in three bands. They set up all their trucks. They're very, you know, this was a lot of like controlled chaos and you never knew if there was going to be a big party backstage, but we, they always knew that it was going to get cleaned up, that it was going to be fun. And they were welcome. We didn't treat the venue people. We felt we treated them as part of the tour. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that's like kind of, that's like the analytic that you just can't measure. It's not about, you know, specifically like ticket sales or things of the nature like that is the lasting impact you have is just that impact and that impression on people and well, that's, that speaks you know, that's what we're hoping uh i can't you know that that young people now will start to create that same energy and get out there and do something really really cool with it um people that were exposed to the warp tour and saw some of that stuff now i don't know if they could duplicate the warp tour but they can create their own thing you know, it was like me when I when I did my own thing. Everyone thought I was trying to copy Lollapalooza. Nothing. I enjoyed Lollapalooza. I learned from Lollapalooza. But when I did my own thing, it was my own thing. Totally. And and what Nikki was talking about of knowing everybody in the backstage of the Xfinity Center, and I'm sure that happened in every city and every venue that you went through the years that you went through the Warp Tour, and other people that I've talked to who have worked in the music business and, and on the and the industry side of it. Do you think that it was just almost? And you said it wasn't. Uh, 
a cocky thing, but do you think it was just your calling? Like this, cause it's, it's, it, it chews people up and spits them out. And if you can't run along and you said you worked for 320 days, if, if you can't do that, then you're in the wrong industry and you can go into sales and some other thing or run a different event service at a hotel or something and it might work. But do you think that it was just, you were made to be in the music industry well, and you have I, the I perfect brain for it? it, but I found myself good at it. And you know, I feel very, very fortunate. I don't know if I would have been good at anything else, yeah. to be honest. Um, at that point, I, I did it. I ran it out. And you know what? I, I guess I've learned to become a pretty good professor because they just offered me another three-year contract. So, um, you know, it, I'm different. I'm never going to fit anyone's mold. But, you know, to be able to go in and now and work with like 100 young people that really – now are starting to think, oh, how do I invest into a nonprofit into my, how do I bring them into what my businesses could be? And how do I do that? That's the best use of my time right now. And do what, sorry, but do you think that just the music industry specifically is different than making movies, like even different aspects of the entertainment industry that it's, again, you were live, you were on the road with kids who were 20, 21, who are creative and a little bit wild. Do you think that it's just uh, a, a thing that you have in you that other people in the music industry also have who are as successful as you are? that there's just something inside of you that you're able to adapt and network. Like Nikki was saying, know everybody at the Xfinity center while keeping control and managing people, keeping your cool. Um, I just felt I had to keep, get up and just work. It was just work. It was getting up and working every day and just working to be the best I possibly could really, really. And, and I was, and people saw that, you know, most festival producers you didn't see at the front gates in, in the morning. Most festival producers weren't out there when the trucks are being opened up. Most people, a lot of festival producers wouldn't know that guy hurt his arm that day. You know, um, you know, it's learning and treating people with respect and treating them all equal. And that's really what, what it was is and people saw that and then rallied around them. And, you know, people now, you know, I get a lot of my people texting and we keep in touch and, and they're like, Oh man, Kevin, you know, you know, come on down. Let's, you know, let's come down to the festival, you know, or, or I might go help some friends with some festivals this year, you know, just help them try to ease back into this and, and help train some young people. Um, I don't know. I just enjoyed it. I loved it. I missed, I missed, I love live events. I love the energy of live events. I don't necessarily like to sit in this. I don't, wouldn't be good in the studio. It's, it's, I've had to learn how to do podcasts and be able to sit and talk to people for an hour versus, you know, jumping all around and, and going and, you know, and, and, and it's controlling your own environment. Warp Tour was, to be honest, my environment that I thrived and lived in. You love your environment. It could be, you know, whatever you love to do. You like, to, I like my environment. That was my environment. I find that going, like I go to the beach the other day, wasn't my environment. I was a little uncomfortable in that crowd. You know, that crowd of people just, it wasn't my thing. Come back to my barbecue, put me behind the barbecue. I have 40 people I'm cooking for them this weekend. We're happy. It's my environment. So I guess I like to control my environment in some ways, you know. Two questions based off of based off of that. Uh one, obviously, you know, on warp tour you have the barbecue bands. Which band uh has the best grill masters? And then you being like, you know, the pit master yourself, what is your favorite barbecue uh thing to smoke or grill? Well, the best barbecue ever was Chuck Reagan from hot water music. You know, he was a great, he wasn't on the barbecue band, but you know, it, the barbecue bands got better and better as we went and they took it more and more seriously. 
So the last few years, there was guys who would try to do some, you know, it gets tiring out. They're like, first they're like, oh man, we're going to do this gourmet burger this day. We're going to, pretty soon it was just burgers with salt. If they got the salt and pepper on it, it was fine, you know? Um, but it was about, you know, it was great. But, um, you know, I, I do a lot of ribs and, and things now, but no one's, we get a lot of vegetarians. We're trying to eat less of it, but I love cooking it. So my neighbors have done very well over the pandemic if they're willing to come over and grab some, a rack of ribs. If they can smell it, they're welcome to it. That's awesome. <laughs> were there any bands that like you guys were just not looking forward to the next day? Like, oh, I'll go to McDonald's tonight. <laughs> it was like the calf meal, <laughs> the high school calf meal over again. I, I don't, it's funny. Some bands come up to me still and people I run into, um, I ran into someone just recently, you know, not in, and said, oh man, I was in a band and we were your biggest pain in the ass. And I'm like, what band were you? Because, <laughs> I'm like, oh. In my mind, I'm going, I don't remember. I, I, you had to have a short memory. Mm. That's honest. You have to have a short memory and, and move on. You know, some people bring it up. There was, you know, bands like the mean reds or rolling. I don't know, you know, that, and I, I'm like, they're, they were just, they're young. You're going to have, you're going to have days, you know? And I, you know, I know at the end I got in some, there was a band and, and to be honest, my brain is um, Islander, Islander, great kids really like them. Talked to them recently. But when they showed up and trashed the gear in 2018, I just sent them home. It's like, I don't need it anymore. This is the last year. I don't need to put up with anyone's shit. I'm out here to have a good time. I'm hanging out with a lot of friends. People are coming out to say goodbye. I don't want to take my time to go deal with a band that decided to destroy our rental drum kit. <laughs> I feel like on any year, probably not something you want to put up with anyways, especially well, the last I did one. in some ways, and I thought I'd, people could learn from that. But I was that last year, 2018, I was like, man, I'm out here for one time. I want to get up, hang out, put up a great show, um, had great bands, great lineup. Thank the people for coming. Thank the venues for coming. Enjoy it as much as possible. So I had a really very short temper that not I had a very short leash. The temper was never it was if I got mad, it was usually just for effect. But then I could turn around and have a conversation with you about whatever. You know, how's your kids? Was that last moment like the last like the last set of Warp Tour? How vividly do you remember that? Was that moment like the pure climax of everything? We're down, you know, we we're down in West Palm Beach. I was like, it was great because I said I wanted Pennywise doing bro him. Every time I die, I was on the other stage, so they kept playing to say they could be the last band on Warp Tour. <laughs> um, so I was in, and everyone was on stage, and. The family was there. I look around. My kids who were one not born, one was a baby. They were both born. My, you know, first one was born the first year of Warped Tour. I looked at all these people that have gone to, gone with you through all these things and realized that was that. And then we sat, then it walked out and started raining. And then we did the two shows in 2019. And the one in Atlantic City, there was this guy and girl. And uh, she's like, he comes over and he goes, hey, man, I want to get engaged to her. How, you know, is that? And I'm like, yeah, you should. He goes, we met at Warped Tour. I said, so when Blink walked off stage, I kind of said, hey, we'll grab the microphone. And he came out and proposed. That was fun. Wow. And then just going into the city, everyone was having so much fun after that show. But the last show in San Francisco, we, it was great. We, it could have ended better. No Effects was going to miss the show. We had to get a private jet for him from Montreal. They barely made it. We got permission to land it at a military base, a police escort. 
I didn't know what to do. So some 41 was on stage and an all-star band, all the band members were up doing no effect songs. We actually got kids on stage singing. I didn't know if they were going to make the show. They pulled up in the back of the stage, ran up, grabbed their instruments, played four or five songs and Warped Tour ended. And it couldn't have ended in a better way. And it couldn't meant more that everyone pitched in to make sure there was a no effect set night that night. The private jet cost about 60 grand to get them there, but (laughs) make it work, you know, Um, and everyone pitched in on the the private jet to get them in too. you know, the band pitched in, the agent pitched in. We all wanted them there to close that set. And literally, though, it was very, very strange feeling the next morning. Well, as I slept in my van, I have a sprinter van now at the venue because we had to clean up and load out. There's still a loadout. It's not just like the end. You got to still load out the show. And when I drove out, I had this, I was with my wife and, and I just go, cool. All right. 25 years. I've done everything I possibly could. I put everything into this. Now it's time to do some other things. Do you ever feel like there's like an inchling more though? I'm one of those people that I'm always just like, take it a little bit further. Do you ever feel like, ah, oh, you know, we got to be out there again next year. Maybe we'll come uh, back I again. Think might, you know, okay. There could be a cruise down the road. The warp cruise was, that was the funnest thing I ever was part of. Yeah. <laughs> the warp cruise was a, was such a great thing. And who knows, you know, I might, I might want to do something, but you know, we have to see, you know, as an independent promoter, if I had, gone on sale in 2020 with warp tour because that's right around the time you know we're talking march and we would have been on going on sale it would have been it would have destroyed me financially after after 25 years wow yeah so not having a tour timing i guess i don't know you know but i feel that's why i felt you almost have sometimes feel guilty that you didn't have a tour when so many of your friends had tours and had things canceled. And all I did was have a summer vacation canceled. My first one in 28 years. Yeah. Wow. And then, you know, having this teaching school, getting to work with students, doing some of the stuff in the mental health field I'm working in. Um, you know, I feel, I feel, I feel blessed. Almost you feel guilty sometimes. Do, do you, do you see, we talked about it in the beginning a little bit, but live music coming back. I do think that this summer fall into the winter is going to be like one of the most significant live music. Uh, I mean, just to think about like from just a purely business point, some of our favorite bands and artists, they got to go out and start making some money. I'm sure that at the, at like a year in like three months that it, some guys who are very well off, they say, I got to get out on tour. I need to make some money. So do you, uh, have you heard any rumblings or? Oh, I mean, I think you're just going to see, you know, you see festivals announcing what every, every couple of days, something's going on. I think you're going to start seeing the tours getting announced pretty quick. One problem with the tours is that, you know, some of these venues that maybe you try to book might not be around unless they get, until they get this money. Uh, but I think you're going to start seeing tours announced. There's a few being announced, but I think you're going to see more and more of them getting announced in the next three to four weeks. Awesome. <laughs> I'm very That's excited. I like to hear. Yeah, very, we'll, very, we'll keep our ears peeled. Kevin, thank you so, so much for talking to us. I mean, awesome, we would Kevin, keep going all you. night if we, if we really could. Great talking to you guys. Where are you, where are you guys all based? Uh, we are in, uh, we're in Massachusetts, uh, kind of on the coastline in a small town called Hull. So it'd be about 40 minutes away from the Xfinity Center, right on the water. Uh, near Barnstable. 
Yeah, yeah, we're like we're like forty there. from uh, Xfinity Center, forty from Boston. So it's okay. All right, cool. Yeah, in Boston Harbor, yeah. Good fishing out there on the Cape. Yeah, yeah, there's great. Yeah, I'll be going out uh, probably tomorrow. Stripers. You got to be careful. One day we took a day off before the Xfinity show. We had one, and we went out on the Cape um, and in Chatham, and we were all swimming. And then as we're walking back, we see this helicopter. And we're like, oh, what happened? What happened? And then we turned on the news and it was a great white shark, like right where we were swimming. So oh, Yeah, yeah. They've been crazy recently. In the past like two or three years, the water's been getting warmer and they've been uh, they've been out big ones too. So. And then today on the news, we got a warning. In this town, actually, uh, if you saw it for the uh, yeah. giant jellyfish, apparently, these jellyfish that grow up to 100 feet. And so <laughs> apparently they're spotted in this area. I don't know. And wars, yeah. Well, unfortunately, if we don't do something about our oceans, they say... 80% of the biomass is going to be jellyfish at one point. So that's what it is. They said the sharks are just, they're so confused. The water's so warm. They don't know what to do and they get closer and closer to shore. It's not their fault, you know? Like, yeah. Well, hope you guys, uh, you, you know, get out. I know to shows and enjoy your summer and, uh, you know, hopefully cross paths at some point. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. Thank we you. really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you guys. Take care. Thanks again for listening to Hull House Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Hull House, H-U-L-L-H-A-U-S. New episodes dropping every week, so stay tuned wherever you're listening.